And the suffering madness. And the locomotive breath. And the Altamina. Headlong to his death. And feel the piston scraping. And groping off his brow. I thank God I stole the handle. Cause the train won't stop going though it could slow down. Yeah. In the suffering madness. The locomotive breath. And the Atawira headlong to his death. Can't stop Gideon's Bible. Open at page one. I thank God he saw the handle. Cause the train won't stop going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry for the break, but we were on tour. But I'm back now. Back here, back at the place, back with the setup, back with the book that we've been reading up until now, Dawn of Everything, by David Grabgrow, uh, chapter eight is this week's chapter. I'm uh, looking to drop another one of these on Friday, just because I want to catch up a little bit, uh, since, you know, we were gone for, I think, like two weeks during the tour, three maybe, so I'm going to do the chapter nine on Friday, so just trying to knock off eight here. So this is chapter eight of the Grab Grow book, where we get into early cities, the birth of urbanity, something that according to Grab Grow has traditionally been understood to be uh, when humanity essentially becomes inevitably married to systems of hierarchy and power that we all are familiar with because things got just too complicated. There were too many people. Uh, it required the creation of alienated structures of power that over time, of course, accrued uh, upwards because that's the only way that you can manage large numbers of people because once you get beyond uh, the, the tribal level, uh, there's something called the Dunbar number of around 150 people who you can have a Maintain a mental uh, narrative of engagement with that you can know, that you can feel like uh, is not a stranger to you. And it's in those groups, uh, theoretically, that it is imagined egalitarianism can be maintained because of the persistence of personal relationships. And past this number, this Dunbar number, you're dealing with strangers and you need mediating alienated institutions of authority to. Uh, live among strangers, which means hierarchy, basic Hobbesian insights. But what Grabgrow say in this chapter is, aha, what if I told you that early urbanity, urban, early urban civilization, the earliest cities in the world show no evidence of uh, existing structures of monarchical power and authority uh, of any kind. You see... Uh, only the remnant of a uh, self-governing 
social order above the Dunbar uh, threshold. So that means, haha, that urban life that uh, then following into you know the following that logic to the current day, which is of course the whole point of this project, which means modern civilization uh, does not require uh, hierarchy and power relationships that are disproportionate, that are icky to the anarchist, because they existed once. Uh, in in the original conditions of urban life. And they start the chapter by uh, pointing out that uh, even the earliest humans uh, were not limited by this Dunbar number. That uh, the evidence of wide areas of uh, emigration between members of tribal groups, meaning the finding of... uh, People, the remains of one uh, person far from the remains of those people who are genetically closestly linked, closest, most closely linked to them, Uh, because they make the point: What if you don't like your family? What if you don't like the people who uh, you're directly related or intimately connected to? Do you just deal with it? Well, yeah. Or if it gets bad enough, you leave. And people did leave. People had kin networks that extended in huge geographic areas uh, arranged around certain symbolic understandings uh, that provided potential places for people to move if they didn't like their family. And that meant that even these very early humans had dual structures in their head for understanding strangers and uh, understanding you know, kin, kin group members uh, and that allowed them to move between the two. Uh, they say that uh, that the, the the first cities were mental. Uh, it was people living among one a number of fellow people, imagining what it would be like if there were more of them, and that because of that imaginative capability, Grabgro is arguing that that meant that those early people had the capacity to govern creatively, basically that they could make a conscious effort to try to live uh, in urban settings rather than you know just uh, being forced to by the prerogative of agriculture because we've already argued in previous chapters that it was not agriculture that required hierarchy. So therefore, it was not uh, agriculture that required cities. And uh, to show evidence for this point, Grabgrow point to uh, evidence of the very first cities in Mesoamerica and in China, uh, which are, we find, emerging centuries before any evidence of the sort of uh, necessary social structures and social hierarchies that we associate with urban living. So that means that there were cities before there were these structures. Meaning that it was not that these structures uh, were not inherent to the building of uh, urban civilization. And uh, in addition, 
forgetting these places that are acknowledged to be early cities, uh, Grab Grow then point to uh, a different group of sites discovered in Ukraine uh, that are in the literature uh, not understood to be cities, uh, but rather mega sites where you have thousands of homes uh, organized uh, in, a, in a plan, like uh, around a, a geographic structure. But because of their very lack of uh, the, the things that we associate with cities, their lack of public uh, um, facilities of any kind, the lack of palaces, they are, don't get called cities. They get called megasites. Uh, and some of these, the way that these uh, megasites are arranged is, is in these concentric circles of a home building where these Watt and Dauble homes are put together uh, in roughly the same size uh, without any, and then a large central empty area where there's nothing remaining. There, that could have been a public space, but whatever was built there was not built there to last the way that the homes were. Uh, and nothing, no evidence of any variation here. Uh, no palaces, no, no, no uh, central uh, storage facilities for communal resources to be reallocated from a center. And uh, Grabgro will take a, an interesting, I think, uh, diversion to talk about persistent uh, social relationships in the uh, Basque country, uh, where ancient traditions of sort of peasant communalism uh, persist in, in the towns, in the villages, where uh, it is this very circular uh, structure uh, of of home building that allows for a, essentially a geometric uh, governance structure that that enforces uh, horizontalist um, decision making by allowing uh, a relationship to be uh, developed and and to be affirmed ritually with neighbors to the left and right who have like direct. Uh, ritually reinscribed social obligations that flow left and right and that flow throughout the whole circuit. And uh, it's, you know, that they do this to sort of suggest, well, this sort of thing could very well have been the governing structure of, uh, of these Ukrainian early cities. Again, no proof playing fast and loose building just a, a, another just so counter narrative to replace the one that we uh, have had to this point. And as I say, they're refreshingly honest about that, which I appreciate. I mean, you can still argue that the project is wrong and that the kind of uh, the, the moral of the story is a bad one to have politically, uh, but that's different, you know, uh, than arguing about, you know, narrow truth and falseness of specific narratives because they're pretty upfront that this is about, this is about counter-narrativizing. And counter mythologizing. And from here, Grabgro go to uh, ancient Mesopotamia, where, where the first cities as we really understand them emerge, like Ur, and and like liter the reason that things are called like that 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 Ur exists is that uh, is that. Uh, Prefix, you know, like the Ur text, 
is precisely because of how uh, primal Ur and Sumer is uh, as a, a scene of the birth of uh, what we understand to be civilization. This is where writing emerges for the first time. Uh, and this is where urban life, as we understand it, emerges for the first time. Uh, and this is where kings also emerge for the first time. But Grabgrove point out that even well, that the Sumerian cities existed for a long time before uh, the dynastic structures that we associate with them emerged, uh, and that even after those dynastic structures emerged, that local governance uh, at like the neighborhood level uh, in Sumeria was probably carried out by uh, assembly. Uh, democratically, the kind of stuff that we associate when we're trying to do like, you know, a precise of Western civilization and its development, we associate with ancient Greece much later. Uh, he's saying, no, that the, those forms of like public uh, uh, deliberation and decision-making were already existing in Samaria. I can't speak again to the evidence because I'm not an archaeologist or an anthropologist. But this is the uh, argument that he's making. And, of course, you could argue, well, this doesn't prove that there isn't hierarchy or in, in, in cities. We have city councils now. Are we going to say that they're fucking examples of democracy? Of course. The point here merely is, is that you have these things emerging, uh, these structures of governance existing before uh, the imposition of kingly power, suggesting that they might have had more, like, real capacity for governance, more sovereignty, uh, and that, therefore, urbanity can coexist with uh, a genuinely, like, democratic polity. That's the thing, claim, anyway. Uh, and speaking to the question of writing, uh, Grabgrove uh, uh, surmised that... Uh, the concentration of writing that you see in early Samaria is around these public temples, uh, which served essentially as factories of uh, branded uh, and uh, uh, homogenized goods, like packaged goods that were then distributed, presumably. Uh, and that language evolved and was used most intensely to uh, facilitate this the bureaucratic business of distributing this output, which is very interesting. Uh, and presumably this, you know, this is, this ritualized process is how uh, legitimacy adhered to whatever structure of governance uh, emerged in the urban context. Because, you know, if we do have this bifurcated understanding where we have our, our Dunbar number peer group, and then we have fellow citizens of an urban area, there is going to have to be some sort of uh, a governing structure there that is not individual and personalized. Uh, and that's where you get things like, presumably, uh, public assemblies uh, and, and deliberation processes. But then you also have a civic bureaucracy. Uh, and they imagine that that civic bureaucracy essentially manufactures uh, consent for its authority through the distribution of these goods which, as I said, uh, were branded uh, literally with symbols associated with, with uh, the city. And uh, this is uh, where 
they get to something that I think is really interesting. And I gotta say, as a, as a as a dialectician, scratches my itch when we're trying to uh, form uh, understandings of historical processes. Uh, Grab Grow at this point suggests that uh, a lot of the things that we do associate with uh, with the dynastic rule that will come to dominate eventually early uh, uh, Mesopotamian civilization emerges in uh, essentially warrior kingdoms on the periphery of the uh, trade zone of the uh, Mesopotamian cities. So the Mesopotamian cities, once they emerge, begin to send out feelers to essentially colonize areas around the city to provide nodes in a trade network. And that the produce of these public temples likely uh, was part of this trade network, the, the creation of this trade network. Uh, but that at the periphery, uh, and in some places that started off as uh, as colonies and then collapsed, you see the emergence of these warrior cults. These uh, and and the, here you uh, and, and in them you probably see the creation of the first uh, like epic tradition of heroism that becomes like ingrained in uh, Western civilization. You know, becomes a, a, a deep archetype. And while it was often uh, suggested that these that that kind of uh, hero society never actually existed. Uh, Grabgrow suggests that uh, on the periphery of the urban development, this, as they imagine it, egalitarian, urban, settled civilization, you see this antithetical way of life emerging. People who have the same way that the, 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 the austere uh, California Indians reacted to the, uh, the uh, Pacific Northwest patchlatch, potlatch culture. By, by creating societies that uh, scorned material consumption uh, and, and valorized labor. You see a situation here where the settled egalitarianism uh, gives rise to uh, cults of uh, warrior prowess and military valor and hunting ability uh, and the hierarchies that go along with that. And they don't say it in the chapter, but uh, you could perhaps trace the emergence of uh, urban hierarchy to the eventual conquest of the urban center by the one of these or, or collections of these uh, uh, warrior uh, kingdoms on their periphery. Uh, from here, Grabgrow turned to the Indus River Valley, another early place uh, where urban uh, existence starts to uh, starts to develop. A very interesting case of early cities uh, that, rather than show the egalitarian structures of the Ukrainian metal, med mega cities, are geographies of hierarchy, uh, specifically where you have an upper uh, an upper citadel of public uh, of, of monumental public architecture based around baths, giant ritual baths, and then a lower city that is literally uh, uh, like situated below, uh, where you see you know as sort of a merchant uh, social order emerging, uh, suggesting castes like uh, ritual castes separating 
of the people in one area from another, but not, according to Gravegross, suggesting that inherently and necessarily uh, that uh, this means a asymmetry in uh, power between these castes. Uh, once again, in the interest of, of building a counter-narrative, they, they do not argue uh, that that the castes of these early Indus Valley civilizations were uh, necessarily not in that those castes did not necessarily have unequal political influence in the management of affairs of the city. He merely says that you can't assume the alternative. You can't assume as they, as has been the case until now that they must have, that there could be a play in there. And this is where you can see them really starting to squint at things. And I think this is about halfway through the book, which is, from what I understand from other reviews, when they start making a much more uh, pointed uh, and, and uh, emphatic argument for horizontalism as a social structure. And you can already see uh, the, the, the argument straining to move in that direction here with the talk about the caste and these uh, early Indus Valley cities. And they close the chapter with a very interesting discussion of uh, the early cities of uh, China, which very quickly turned into uh, his, like, regimes of violent hierarchy uh, based on like, rituals of human sacrifice, uh, that, that vast inequality of, of, li- of lifestyle and status that is easily uh, examined in the archaeological record. Uh, like just pits filled with decapitated uh, sacrifice victims and shit, uh, and you know, uh, richly adorned graves of the uh, aristocrats, and and you know, uh, literally nothing even provided for the corpses of the commoners. Uh, but that uh, these Chinese cities saw a collapse, and not just a collapse, evidence of the ruling class of the cities being literally. Def- uh, uh, seized, tortured, executed, uh, and that in the ruins of uh, these, you know, former citadels of of of, uh, of god kings, uh, the pup, the monumental uh, palatial areas being invaded by the structures of the of the uh, city, it's the rest of the city, and and the uh, the residential area sort of growing out of its confines. Uh, and that this is generally referred to in literature as just a collapse and of anarchy. But Grabgrow suggests, what if this is the beginning of the concept of urban revolution? And that what we're seeing in the aftermath is not uh, anarchy, but it is an attempt to, uh, by a community at large, to govern collectively, having overthrown... Uh, brutal and unjust rulers. Uh, And the next chapter, which is going to focus on early cities in uh, Mesoamerica, uh, is going to apparently make the claim that that sort of cycle of uh, urban uh, dynastic power regimes being overthrown from below uh, is much older than we imagine and uh, actually is... uh, basically co-invented along with uh, 
urbanization, implying, of course, again, that alternatives to uh, hierarchical social structures within urban civilizations were always present. And I've mostly just been describing this. I haven't really been uh, offering my own take on it because, I don't know, I'm still... I'm still thinking. <laughs> Some of it's persuasive. Other of it, I really don't feel like I know enough to, to go against it. But it's certainly, and this is the thing about uh, Graeber's work, certainly, is that it's always interesting, which is way more important than being accurate. Because uh, it's only interesting stuff that can make you, you know, churn up your own self-conceptions and, and challenge them from different angles. Uh, all you can really do with information is just put it on the pile. If you already feel like you know how things work. I am skeptical of the argument about, uh, about urban civilization. Uh, because I have a feeling that a lot of these uh, horizontal structures that he imagines existing in early uh, early human urban civilization uh, that they had a lot more uh, uh, systems within them of like coordinated power and influence that sort of obviated the democratic participation and, and rendered a lot of it uh, ritualized and sterile uh, than they necessarily imagine. And that's just because, you know, the, the, the amount of evidence we're dealing with is so, so small. I mean, we, we really are just left looking at the, at the bones of these worlds. I mean, like, we have no idea what the hell was in the, big, in the, in the donut hole of those Ukrainian megasites. You know, the idea that it was completely empty seems highly unlikely, but what was there? What, what, what sort of, uh, you know, public structures and public uh, rituals were carried out there that reinforced power? And where did that power really flow from? No way of knowing. All you can do is, is, is fill in the gaps. And what GrabGrow are doing, and the reason that I can't bust their balls too much, is they are merely saying, there was one way to look at this, you know, collection of evidence. There was one, uh, one package of of insights and 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 projections and leaps and conjectures to uh, patch between to patch the holes to to fill the gaps in this record. Uh, and they all pointed in one direction, and for very specific reasons, to push a very specific agenda. Uh, we merely suggest that. You can do it in a different way for a different agenda. And if that's the case, if we could make a compelling argument that this is true, that has the same sort of persuasive power that the one you took for granted did, well, just that very fact in your mind should make, should make you feel that all of the choices in front of you that seem fixed, that seem uh, immutable, uh, might actually be similarly uh, flexible. Might 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 offer a similar uh, capacity f to be reimagined. And you know, will it do anything? Probably not. But we all have to spend our time on this earth doing something.
And uh, a lot, some of us made the decision we don't want to feel too complicit in what is, but we also don't want to uh, not benefit materially from what is. And that means doing something that feels true, that feels like it's advancing some public good. Uh, even if it's entirely theoretical. Okay, so that was pretty quick. Uh, last two, I feel like, have been pretty quick. Next next episode, Friday, will be about Chapter 9, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Indigenous Origins of Social Housing and Democracy. In, Amer- in the Americas. Social housing and democracy in the Americas. Yeah, the whole project is just to assume that there was such a thing as political subjectivity before modernity, which... Uh, like liberal uh, understandings of, of history won't allow for because uh, it's that Promethean gift of uh, political subjectivity that justifies the modern world. Now, this is true even for Marxists because you cannot, you cannot break the wheel, right? You cannot, uh, overthrow class society absent the uh, the imaginary categories of, of citizenship and rights that modernity creates. And I got to say, I have a hard time throwing that away. Because, well, you might say, and Grabgrow might say, you see these cycles you see these impulses, you see this capacity exist going back to prehistory. Yes, but you do not see the ability of those forces to coalesce in the face of hierarchy and ritual put to the purpose of uh, an executive function concentrated in one part of a social structure, able to wield technology with the efficiency of of a relatively uh, coherent and sim- singular purpose, which will always be at the very top of the social structure. It can't go anywhere else. It's only the capacity for cooperation across distance and across culture and structure and language that m- modernity a lot, uh, creates that allows for the capacity for self-organization and uh, and social manipulation of technology that can do the the work that uh, is required of a uh, social structure that can defend itself and that can in fact uh, extinguish challenges to itself. 
Which is why the funny thing is, is that, like, honestly, no matter what story they tell in this book or how, or how persuasive it is about how things emerged, how regimes of power emerged, uh, at a certain point, they are irrelevant for the very fact that we are different people than they were. Our relationship to our environment and technology has turned us into different beings, have put a screen between those people and us that might as well be uh, a, a, uh, a branching of the evolutionary tree. Like, we might as well be considered different species than them. Uh, and the difference is not to be found in our DNA, it's to be found in our technology. As an interdicting uh, element between uh, the human experience and the natural world, which did not exist. Technology existed, certainly, but not at a, at, at a level that allowed for that degree of radical alienation and that transference of social skill, knowledge, uh, action uh, onto uh, technological regimes. Like, I do think, you know, you talk about the anth the Anthracene, how, how we live in a world where that where the uh, the um, the eco the ecological structure, the eco the uh, the biome itself uh, is defined by the impact humans have on it, right? We went from the Holocene to the Anthropocene in that model. Uh, there was a similar transformation to humanity, where we became a different species. Our relationship to the world is not the relationship of every any other species on this planet. And that was not true when humans were forming uh, for the first time, like enduring in large-scale social structures. Like, our DNA is fundamentally different. I mean, hell, this is literally true now, right? In the sense that we're all, our balls are all filled with microplastic. Like, we literally, we're like those crabs that uh, use, like, uh, uh, soda cans as, as shells. We've got fucking plastics in our genetic material. And that doesn't mean that there's no hope for humanity. It just means that that hope has to take into account the reality of modern subjectivity and how it breaks a lot of the connective tissue that allowed for that early large-scale 
egalitarian social ordering. Things like the state, structures like that, are part of a regime of technology that we have grown cybernetically linked to, and which can't be excised without killing the host. But the thing is, is that this machine keeps creating all of these technologies. And yes, they are every day impressing uh, power on us more, but only where power can be exerted. That, that area is shrinking. Like we're turning into these archipelagos of control, but outside of it is not nothing. And even within the archipelagos, there are islands there where there are people who have been chewed up and spit out by this thing and who have access to these regimes of technology. Not at the same level, not able to exert the same power, but able to build alternatives and resist where possible. But the difficulty of, for anyone who tries to talk about effective political action in this day and age is that you are very quickly talking about stuff that is illegal. You're very quickly moving to resistance in a meaningful sense as opposed to hashtag resistance, which by definition is resistance that invites state retaliation. How do you talk about that? How do you talk about that publicly? I mean, honestly, if you see people talking about it too enthusiastically and publicly, your instinct should probably be they're a fucking cop. Whom, whom would like to do some crimes? Please speak into my comically large lapel pin. You gotta say though, like the the Houthis launching a drone that blows up the fucking uh, for, Formula One race. Kind of cool. But yeah, like there's no way you either. Talk about it forthrightly until you get uh, kicked off all platforms. Uh, or you talk about it in a hypothetical way that is meant more than anything to uh, polish your bona fides as a badass revolutionary so that people will think you're cool and good and keep listening to you. Uh, or just, yeah, do uh, Asian provocateur stuff meant to uh, round up people and provide more make work for the FBI.
All right. Well, that was a fast one. I probably won't do the whole hour, uh, but if anybody has any questions, maybe I'll wind up with that. It's interesting. Any th thoughts on similarities between structures of power we face technologically and historical ones? I really think that we, in terms of like the basic technological structure of power that we live under. Now we're not. I'm not even. When you're not even talking about structures, or you're not even talking about like alienated material technology, like computers, uh, any of that shit. When you're just when you're talking about mere symbols. And uh, their socially reinforced meaning. Language, the original technology. Uh, we're basically under the same uh, regime of symbols uh, as uh, the Holy Roman, uh, I'm sorry, as, uh, as subjects of the Roman Empire were. Right? I've said this before, but Philip K. Dick was correct. The Roman Empire never ended. We have seen... Um, different regimes of uh, class class power rule, the, the, the slavery of Rome, feudalism of medieval Europe, modern liberal demo, uh, uh, capitalism, uh, and those cycles have been powered by uh, class conflict expressed through uh, essentially class civil war uh, and then exacerbated by uh, ecological changes that the system is not able to accommodate. Uh, and that leads to common ruin. But with power still held largely in the same or structures, thanks to the deeper embedded ideas about liberty, freedom, justice, virtue, uh, that persist regardless of the material regime. And they can only ever be uh, overthrown by uh, an alliance of class elements led by the working class. And before capitalism emerged, there was no working class to uh, assert its own self-interest. There is only the sacks of potatoes in the countryside and the restive urbanites. So that's why you only get the the a rock getting pushed up the hill and then falling back down again. But because time is moving forward and entropy is, is increasing in the system, you have like real revolutionary changes and, and redistributions of power. But within a iron cage that is enforced conceptually, 
And yes, the Empire just moves west as it seeks to uh, escape the inevitable doom of any uh, geographically and temporally fixed regime of hierarchical power. Because eventually, the system you've created will accumulate internal contradictions and impact the uh, ecological balance that you depend on in a way that will fundamentally lead to the destruction of uh, the formal regime. Now, one power, one new class can seize power revolutionarily, but it can only ever be uh, the middle class before modernity, before liberalism, before the working classes emerge. The working class emerges on the world stage. But we're living now in the aftermath of their failure, and the reality that collapse is now assured. But as always. This is cyclical. This is not the end of the world in such a sense that it makes you as a person no longer obligated to your fellow people or to yourself to live. Any more than it did for anybody else at any point in this cycle in the past. If the thing, if the thing survives, it's going to do it by decamping to Beijing and make its way all the way around the world. If it doesn't, power will fall back to these archipelagos that will be totally deterritorialized. They will all look like each other. There will be no geographic specificity to them. They will be no places because that's the only place the capital can persist. Is in a deterritorialized uh, nowhere. Like they'll, it'll be in specific places, but like those places won't meaningfully be America or Russia or China or whatever the fuck country they're supposed to be in because none of the things that make that a meaningful term will exist within them. It'll just be money. I think if you go to Las Vegas, you see this very clearly. When, uh, when they started building the big family-friendly hotels on the Strip in the early 90s with the junk bonds... Uh, they, all those casinos referenced some historically and geographically fixed human civilization, some element of human existence, some part of the greater narrative of human uh, development, the fucking pyramids, uh, uh, Arthurian uh, Europe, um, Or they gestured towards like a style and an era, like the Bellagio is like Italianate. Then you got the Venetian, which is literally medieval Venice with the fucking canals and everything. Paris with the fucking uh, Eiffel Tower in front. Uh, but the ones that have been built really since the crash so in the 20, 20th century are all completely divorced of any identifying cultural elements. They are just ice blocks. They're just sleek glass rectangles that only represent money. And that's, that's what civilization will look like in these techno-feudal cantons. It will no longer be 
geographically bound. It will no longer be uh, fixed to the land in any sense. Now, of course, this is the structure that is being resisted by all of our nationalist movements running through the world right now, right? Uh, Putin is, is, is on the shooting uh, end of a global war, uh, of uh, a global uh, insurgency of fixed wealth, of uh, extraction industry, largely wealth, uh, against this coming deterritorialization. But it's powered by the same capitalism. All it uh, all it promises is a more uh, uh, a, a rapider collapse towards uh, a bifurcated regime where you're still going to have these zones of wealth, but then you're also going to have these uh, places left behind where the uh, rituals of politics are still going to be carried out. And the state will still exist to uh, assert maximum violence, to coerce uh, cooperation with the market. But the victims that it uh, sacrifices are, rather than going to be uh, the victims of you know the market, oh so sad, are going to be chosen, are going to be sacrificed. And that sacrifice will be proof of the continued uh, sovereignty of the people in these areas. When in reality, the, uh, the necessity of their death is being uh, created once again by the very algorithm that uh, the people carrying out these massacres uh, are going to be claiming to fight against. Because that is, that is the promise of the, of the global nationalist tide. It is not going to do anything about uh, the property regime, like I said, based in Roman conceptions of value, uh, that is destroying the world and robbing us of our ability uh, to, to assert any control of our lives. Uh, by... Uh, but we still have uh, the freedom to punish. Uh, and what you know, what the uh, what the weak-blooded urbanites want is a system where all the bloodshed is carried out technologically and uh, discreetly, allowing us to spend our time fixated on our narrow nail-gazing uh, uh, lives, uh, cultivating our identities, and neurotically uh, sublimating all of our guilt about what's happening into this cultivation of the self, uh, while voluntarily giving up any control of uh the remaining sovereignty, which is the choice of who who dies, uh, and the the nationalist, capitalist, uh, 
counter-regime instead says, fuck that. Let us be in charge of uh, where the gun gets pointed. Let us uh, enact rituals of violence that reaffirm our domination of the land and of each other. And of course, that's just as navel-gazy and uh, and neutered and neurotic uh, as as the liberal dream. Uh, but it has with it that uh, appeal of action. And some people are going to be, for reasons of individual uh, experience in life, drawn to that. It'll be very interesting to see what happens, certainly. I make no claims to any specific uh, outcome. Just the general general scheme, the general dynamic. General dynamics, huh? Because there's because the, the avalanche is too fast. There's too many little boulders rolling off of it. Each one of them is ricocheting off other ones and creating uh, a network of uh, butterfly effects that are absolutely uh, unanticipatable. AMLO nationalized the lithium? Okay, that's interesting. That's fucking interesting. We'll see what happens there. He's also very popular, which is interesting. Like he's, got, he's got actual uh, like support. Among voters. I do really feel like Latin America is going to be like the deciding factor, but how? I don't know. All right. Uh, I think that's good for today. Friday, we'll read chapter nine. We'll talk about how they started building public housing in uh, ancient Mesoamerica. So that'll be interesting. Bye-bye.